0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of Exploring Mormon Thought. Last time we finished up the book The Attributes of God, And today I wanted to go over kind of a book critique, if you will. I'll put a link to these two items that I'm going to talk about in the blog post. But at the time when my dad published the book, they had a Sunstone Symposium and they had a session specifically on this book, An Author Meets Critics. And so some people gave some critiques of the book and my dad was able to answer some of them. But... As you can imagine, he only had about 15 minutes to answer four people's 20 plus minute long presentation. So everything wasn't explained all the way in depth. So we're going to go over kind of that and then also reference another Sunstone Symposium. I think this came out just before the book, but it has to do with the ultimacy of God and things like that. So, yeah, we've gone over the book, and some of these questions might have to wait for another time, and we're not going to try to go in-depth, and then so whatever you hear today isn't going to be the most in-depth, detailed-out answer, just kind of getting the basic overview of some options for these questions. All right, so first, I want to talk about the subject of God's ultimacy, and we kind of got into this a bit in the first chapter, The Mormon Concept of God, and I just wanted to get some of your take on it. So, for example, during, I believe, the, the Power of God Symposium thing that I have referenced, you say that Anselm, who came up with the... What, what argument did he come up for the existence of God?
1: The five ontological arguments. That is, they all argue... That it can be shown that God's existence is logically necessary. Right, so
0: in the ontological argument by Anselm, you mentioned that basically Anselm had convinced you that God needed to be the greatest, not necessarily the greatest conceivable being, but the greatest being that is in existence. Can you explain why that is? is?
1: They're Not just the greatest being in existence. It may be that maybe the greatest being in existence has significant defects, and is not very wise and not very powerful and doesn't suffice to really flesh out what is meant in the Judeo-Christian tradition by the word God. So it's not just the greatest existing being. God is that being who is worthy of worship and who can demand our ultimate allegiance. And if there is no such God, then there is no God that exists of the nature revealed in the Judeo-Christian scripture. And that's the God that I'm exploring precisely because Mormonism is an error, accepts the Bible, accepts the Judeo-Christian scriptures, and expands on them, if you will, gives us further light and knowledge. And so any view that would suggest that such a being doesn't exist would be the rejection of the existence of the God of Judeo-Christian scripture, which would include the God revealed in the Mormon scripture.
0: Um, All right, so as far as the greatest conceivable being goes, In the book and in one of the conference on God's ultimacy, you give this analogy of your wife and you kind of compare it to say that we wouldn't want to be like this with God. You say, let's say I have my wife and to me she's the most beautiful woman in the world, but I wouldn't want to say to her that I love you only because you're the most beautiful person in the world and if I found another more beautiful than you, then I would go to her. And so you're saying, you know, if there's something more Powerful than our God, then we should go and worship that being or entity or whatever it is. So I was just a little confused, both in the book and here. You give that analogy, but isn't that kind of the opposite of what you're trying to say with this wife analogy? Because, I mean, my wife, anyone's wife, no one's wife is probably the most beautiful being in the world, and yet we want to remain in relationship with these people because we choose to. So I'm just wondering if you could clarify what you meant by that, or maybe I missed something.
1: Well, I happen to have the amazing privilege and luck of actually being married to the most beautiful woman in the world. And even if there were some other more beautiful woman, I can't imagine myself not loving her because I'm fully committed to her. But there's a difference here. Merely loving something or a person isn't quite sufficient, is it? I mean, you may love your dog, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be fully committed to your dog or even that you'll be fully committed to your wife at all costs. I can easily imagine a situation where I could say, you know, if my wife did certain things that were totally out of character, I'd say, you know, I I can't continue our relationship. I just can't. But I'm going to make two observations. I had a very good friend, Sterling McMurrin, who was a professor of philosophy at the University of Utah. He was also the commissioner of education for the United States of America in the Kennedy administration. And he wrote a book called "The Theological Foundations of Mormonism," which was, I, I think, for a lot of people of my generation, at least very formative and educational in something that we cut our teeth on. And he made this comment, I interviewed him, for a paper that was then being published down at BYU, the '70s press. And he made this comment. He said, "You know, Mormons have a great talent for trivializing their own theology." and I asked him what he meant by that. You know, you treat God as if though he were some guy down the street just a long time ago who's fully grown up. That's not what God is at all, certainly not in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and not the kind of thing that we would ever really want to call God. There's another philosopher, Paul Tillich. There's a lot about what Paul Tillich that I want to reject, you know, about what he says. But what he says about God being our ultimate concern rings true to me, and here's why. The God in Judeo-Christian tradition reveals himself as that being who is a jealous being and having no other gods before him, and who demands our entire heart, might, mind, and strength. He's the kind of God who could ask you to do something, and by the fact that he asks you to do something, you're obligated to do it. It's that kind of relationship. So God isn't just some guy down the street a long time ago who grew up, and he's not on par with your wife, and he's not on par with just some other human being. God is that being to whom we look for our ultimate deliverance and salvation. He's that being who organized the entire universe. He's that being on whom the laws of the universe depend because he concurs with them. So to start with these kinds of comparisons, the point of the comparison is that if there's a more ultimate God than the God that we know would be perfectly natural for our allegiances to change, like they changed in ancient Israel. I mean, if you went from one nation state to the other, you may worship the God Baal in one nation state because that's where God's reign has ultimacy. Because in that nation state, if you don't worship that god, not only will you be killed because the god of that realm won't protect you, but because the king will make sure that you die because that means you don't have allegiance to the king either. And I don't want to be banal about this, but Yahweh was that kind of being saying, doesn't matter when you go to these other realms, you still worship me. I'm the god of the entire universe. And so when we find out that he's not the god of the entire universe, that there's somebody who came before him and on whom he relied to become god and who is more ultimate in terms of the basis for our glory and salvation, it would be totally logical to change allegiances. And so the notion that there's a more ultimate than God, it seems to me, is inconsistent with what we want to say about God in terms of the scriptural demands that are made upon us. Now you can say, look, if God came and asked me to give my only son to him in terms of a sacrifice, my answer would be no, because that was the appropriate answer. Well, so be it. But that's not the God that was revealed to Abraham, wasn't the God revealed to Isaac and Jacob, and certainly not the God to whom Jesus allegiance. This is the kind of God who doesn't have anyone greater than he. He deserves all praise and glory, and there just isn't any other being in the universe that could fill the category of that being. So I want to say that it trivializes our theology tremendously to start down the road of saying, well, he's just another in an infinite line of gods, and his day came when he became a god. But there are large parts of the universe governed by other gods, and he just happened to fly out to this part of the universe to organize it the other gods hadn't quite gotten to yet. That kind of a theology, I don't believe will withstand scrutiny.
0: Okay, Um, I understand that you're probably going to disagree with this, but some things caught my attention in the conferences from some of the other speakers, and they said something kind of along these lines— well, first, this thing here with the wife analogy, what I was kind of getting at is that your wife is someone that you have chosen to be in relationship with, and it is irrelevant if someone is somehow, has some kind of quality that she doesn't have more developed because that's the person you love, that's the person you're relationship with. But more, I kind of want to compare it to the reason, at least that I understand, that we give God this worship worthiness or this trust or that he could demand something of us that we would do it is because we trust him in that we have seen the kind of being that he is and his ideals. And he said, do you guys want to be like me, basically? Hey, I'm an intelligence. You're an intelligence. And we're like, hey, it looks like you are a whole lot more developed. And holy cow, when we see you, we realize that that's what we need to get to, but we don't know how to get there. It's like, well, you know what? I can help you get there. And so we follow him then. So let me put this forth. Perhaps the reason that we trust God, we follow him, is because he stands for the ideals and he has the thing, like he has a position that we agree with. He has a vision for the universe that we want to follow. For example, let's say God said, love is the ultimate in the universe and we agree with him. That doesn't necessarily mean that there can't be some other greater power that perhaps maybe even you know, some other power saying, no, coercion is the ultimate power in the universe and we should make everything do what we can. That's another point of view and that's kind of what Satan was trying to get at. But we chose to go with our God because we agree with him. And so it seems that the honor due to him and the reverence and the obedience is because he's kind of like a respected leader. And I I just wrote down in my thoughts, like, let's say you have a cool boss or I don't know, just someone you really respect, and what you do is you buy into their vision, and when you buy into someone's vision, then you follow them. I'm kind of rambling a bit, but is there some reason something like that couldn't work, or why, why is that not ultimate enough?
1: It's not like God is merely a respected well, link leader. Well, that's a metaphor. That's like it a metaphor, obviously. And, well, but you're missing the point of the analogy with uh, regarding my wife the point of the analogy is what would constitute ultimate allegiance and commitment and as i said i can imagine situations in which a relationship that's been loving and so forth could sour and not be loving anymore it can be the case that you can be upset at god but it doesn't change the fact that he's god (laughs) it could be the case that you're angry at god doesn't change the fact that he's god and he has the right to make demands upon you talk about trivializing theology i mean if your dog can fill the same spot as God because you love him and you think he's a great dog, then you've really gone too far in my view. And so you're going to have to have a way of distinguishing that kind of love and commitment from the kind of love and commitment demanded of God that is one's entire being that is being demanded. And so the kind of being that can demand that, is, and it's not merely that, it's the promises that he's made to us. He's promised us the ultimate salvation from everything that can threaten our well-being ultimately and so if god's going to be able to carry that out he has to have the ability and the power to do so he has to be able to save us from all powers that could threaten the ability to be saved for instance and so god is just not i mean i i i know a lot of mormons want to say well god is exactly like us in every respect and he is he's the same species that we are But God is also more because of the kind of relationship that he has to the universe and to us. He is the one who organized the universe. He's the one that holds it in its order. He's the one who has perfected love and done so from all eternity. And he's invited us into the relationship. But again, we've got a lot to learn to be in that kind of relationship and to be able to share fully all that God is. So the glory that God has has promised to share with us far outstrips anything that a human could offer to us. The kind of power that he offers to share with us is far beyond. It's of a different kind than any individual human could offer to us. He's offering to us the greatest knowledge and power that's possible for any human being to possibly share in, and not merely for any human being to share in, but for any divine being to share in. And so if there were a being who had greater glory, who could offer us more it would seem logical to me that we would say, well, this king has ruled this realm now for, for 500 years, but there's a new king, and there's a new pharaoh on the land, and he's now in control. But I'm still going to give my allegiance to that old king, even though he was bested by the new king. There's something of that in this, because the analogies that are being used in the Old Testament are monarchical analogies. That is, they have to do with kingship, with this kind of territorial allegiance. And they grow out of that kind of an idea. I don't want to stay mired in an ancient view that doesn't live for us anymore. But it's not like I just choose at random some being to love, and that's going to be sufficient. That's not what the Judeo-Christian scriptures reveal about God. So what kind of being is it that could make demands upon us? It may be that you know we just say, well, I ultimately trust this being. But what kind of being can we put ultimate trust in? Not just trusting to carry out some things, not just trusting that, you know, they're going to like me even when I'm stupid or when I do bad things. They're going to always love me and look out for my best interests and have the power to bring about the greatest good for me that's possible to conceive. That's the kind of being we're talking about. And So at the bottom, what I'm doing is rejecting Brigham Young's theology. I'm rejecting the kind of infinity of God's view that he suggested. I don't think it's a view that Joseph Smith held. And when we get into the last chapter of the second volume and the first chapter of the third volume, I explain at much greater length why I believe that that's the case. But I believe that the kind of theology that we're talking about is a misunderstanding of what Joseph Smith taught. It's not merely trivializing the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's rendering it something where the being that it delivers as a God just can't be called God in any respect. You might call this being a really wonderful being that you can admire, but that's a far distance from the God of the Judeo-Christian tradition. All right,
0: well, one last thing on this then. Just in the conference, something, the, the last, I guess it was kind of a comment from the audience. A guy said he had read the Brothers Karamazov, which is a... Dostoevsky book. And he's like, you know, the guy in there, they have this talk about God and problem of evil and stuff like that. And he's like, you know, I don't, I can't understand why anyone would worship the God of the Old Testament. He's like, if it's not like Jesus, then that has to be God. He has to be this God of of love and mercy and tenderness and things like that. It's, But it's not necessarily because of his power that he's worshiped. It's because of his ideals. And he said, I think that if our God Let's say there's two scenarios. He says, what if we found out that there was some more ultimate being than our God and he was evil and that we had to live in eternal foxholes forever because it was the, I don't remember, it was some philosophical term. It was like the, the maniacal evil from someone's philosophy. He's like, then, but we at least are still at that point following our God. And he said, well, let's say another scenario, let's say there was a God that happened to come along, and he happened to love more than our God, or he, you know, expressed these things in more full. It's like, I, I would hope that our God would be the kind of being that would say, you know what, I found something even better, and I think we should all go follow him. As long as we're trying to choose this love, it doesn't matter if there is something necessarily, I don't know, I'll put, you can post it there, but uh, just one more thing on in this section, so we can move on from it. So what if this God was just ultimate enough to give us salvation? Well, first off, I guess I have to say, what is the salvation that you speak of? Just somehow bringing us to a higher level, or what?
1: Salvation is saving from those things that seek our destruction. That's the way it's always been. Things like death, things that would make it so that life is always miserable. And so salvation in Christian thought is being delivered from those things which either destroy us or which make our lives unlivable. That's different than exaltation, which is participating in all the gifts that God has to give to us, including in Mormon thought, being everything that he is and sharing everything that he has. That's called a theosis or, or deification. And so salvation is a distinct concept. I don't believe that in the New Testament that kind of distinction is always clearly made. They weren't systematic thinkers and they were logical thinkers in this sense. But generally, when they're using the term salvation or being saved from something, that's what they mean. And so salvation is the ability to save from those things that seek our destruction, at least in terms that the lectures on faith state is what salvation is.
0: Just before we move on here, so I'm just trying to understand, because from my point of view, I don't know, I guess we can talk about the universe dying and stuff, but we'll get into that in a second. All the things that we experience in life aren't necessarily going to be eternally a threat to us. Death We're trying to get saved from that with the resurrection, but like even if we weren't, ultimately we're trying to just grow as beings. I think a lot of Mormons and a lot of a trend right now is going towards, obviously, and again, this is just an analogy, but kind of like a teacher-student type relationship. Let's say God is some, again, an analogy, like a super Zen ninja master person. They're mysterious, and you come to them and you say, I want to learn to master the things just like you, and I want to be the kind of person or being that you are. And, you know, they teach you, but sometimes it seems like what you're doing is a waste of time. Like, Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. Oh, actually, I've been teaching you this whole time. You thought you were just suffering and having a terrible life, but you came to me, and you trust me, and you know that whatever I'm going to do is for you're good and you can learn something from it. And whether or not it makes sense to you right now doesn't really matter because you trust, because you've seen what kind of being I am. I, at least on the surface, tend to think that makes a lot of sense as well. Because if God was the kind of being that just had the ultimate power, then that doesn't seem like that is enough for me to worship. Having ultimate power is not demanding of worship to me. Well, but
1: it's not the suggestion that, that we worship power or that merely because God has ultimate power, we worship him. It's a combination of the fact that God is the greatest love, that he wills ultimate power, and that he's committed to our greatest good. Look, let's say that God, were the most loving person in the universe, but couldn't carry off any of the promises that he made to us. Would you look to him for the kind of things that uh, God has said to save us from in the judeo Christian scripture? I suggest that the answer is no.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm not looking for him to necessarily save me from anything. I'm looking to learn from him and be more like him. That's the difference between the Mormons and the traditional Judeo-Christian scriptures, I understand.
1: Well, if I came up with a number of scriptures in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants that talked about being saved from something or being saved, they would number well over 100 It's not like salvation is something that is inimical to or something that's apart from the Mormon tradition. The fact that God is teaching us, that he's leading us, for those who have eyes of faith to see, God is, in fact, acting as a mentor. He's giving us opportunities to learn from our experience, and whether we learn or not is up to us because of our free will. But it's still the case in my view. And and, and look, I, I appreciate that there are the views, but it doesn't seem to me that any mere mentor is going to suffice for God. What kind of mere mentor can say, I'm going to give you things to do, and no matter what I ask, you're obligated to do them. And no matter what I ask, you can trust that what I'm asking you to do is always in your best interest. That takes a person who has at least sufficient knowledge to know what's in your best interest and what would accomplish it no matter what. Who has sufficient power to preserve you in the face of all challenges that might come your way. And a person who is ultimately dedicated to you because that person loves you so completely. So it's more than just power. It's a combination of these kinds of things. Again, I suggest that the lectures on faith have a pretty good take on what is it, what's necessary in order to exercise rational faith in God. And they give a number of requirements. One is that God doesn't lie, for instance. You'd have to believe that when the master is saying, you know, I'm really committed to your best interest, you believe, well, he's not lying to me. Now, it doesn't have to be the case that it's logically impossible for God to lie. But at least there would have to be a basis for your trust, it seems to me. So, you know, God is that being who we can trust. And why can we trust God? It's not because it's logically guaranteed that we can trust God. It's because God, over ends of time, has demonstrated his commitment. And that we have joined him in the endeavor that he's invited us to participate in. And you go back to the quotation from the Brothers Karamazov that you were referring to where his brother Ivan is challenging him. He's just told him about a situation where a little boy, his mother is there, and the little boy's done something that really makes the owner of the estate really upset. And so what happens is the owner of the estate gives the boy a bit of a lead, and then he turns his dogs loose on him, and the mother watches as the dogs run and catch the little boy and rip him to shreds. And Alyosha is challenged by Ivan as follows. This is a quote. Imagine that you are creating a fabric of human destiny with the object of making men have peace and rest at last, but it was essential and inevitable to torture to death only one tiny creature, and to found that edifice on its unavenged tears. Would you consent to be the architect on this condition? The key word here is unavenged. (laughs) Okay. Because if in the end, the momentary pain that's suffered by the child is more than made up for in terms of the promises that have been made and the conditions that exist, then we may consent. We're never going to consent if in the end, everything is unavenged. If ultimately there are injustices that are unavenged and we're founding the benefit for others on the unavenged tears of the powerless and the small. Nobody would seek to be saved or exalted on those conditions. But if we're all being treated for our best good, no matter what, under the circumstances, because we have been promised such a great good that it justifies undergoing the kinds of experiences that are necessary for us to learn the conditions to achieve that great good, then we may consent. In the end, what I'm suggesting is that a God who can't really deliver avenged tears in the end, a God who can't deliver the purposes that he's told you he's going to accomplish because he lacks the knowledge and or lacks the power and or lacks the loving commitment, isn't somebody to whom we would properly give our consent, and we wouldn't participate with him in the endeavor. And so I believe that's why the Judeo-Christian God merits our worship and our commitment, He's the greatest love in the universe. And the only way to accomplish achieving this greatest of goods in the universe, of being in the relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, to achieve the greatest love, the greatest knowledge, and the greatest power shared with them, is to learn through our experiences to love as they do. And if we have faith that God is, in fact, committed to that and the experiences in life are giving us the opportunity to learn that kind of love, then I think I could join him in that endeavor, even if there are injustices along the way, so long as I know that those injustices are worth it, that in the end, God can actually deliver what he promises, but not just for me, but even for the child whose tears appear to us to be unavenged. Now, this is a much greater issue. It's it's a theodicy or explanation of how and why God allows evil, and that's I've had a book written now for about five years on the problem of evil. It hasn't come out yet. I may get it ready and get it out within a little while. But that's, I mean, it's a 500-page it's a discussion, so I don't intend to solve it all tonight. But I do want to say that the only kind of God who could really function as God is the God who could pull off those promises.
0: Okay, that's fair enough, and you can you see it that way? So now let's turn kind of to something that, you know, you could see that was kind of a, a side note, just kind of an undertone in the book. And I thought it was relevant just because we're talking about God's attributes. But now let's kind of go into more particular items that were in the book. Um, first, I want to talk about some ideas about God's power, and just for my clarification. So in chapter 4, so Maximal Divine powers, is chapter 4. And we kind of come up with this definition for omnipotence where... Basically, God will generally work through persuasion. He can persuade intelligences and won't overpower them, and can't actually ontologically, meaning that's just not possible, control intelligences, which is what, you know, is kind of our consciousness.
1: Well, he couldn't do so and leave us individuals. I mean, obviously God could, for a period of time, make us unconscious, I and mean, he could cause us to go to sleep, or, I mean, at least he has the power of, of a human anesthesiologist, I would hope.
0: Okay, well, I'm talking about, like, our actual, not our bodies, not any bodily function or function of our brain, but our actual will, assuming that we have the power to exercise it. I've, and that's what I'm getting at. So you also say that he could somehow limit our physical abilities to accomplish our will, but he can't control our will, because we are independent.
1: He can't control how we exercise our will if we exercise it freely. And he can't control the fact that we are free if we act as an intelligence. What he can, however, he can prevent us from willing at all, it seems to me. In the same way that an anesthesiologist could stop me from willing anything, he could just render me unconscious. You know, a normal-sized guy with a normal-sized fist could render a lot of people unconscious.
0: Alright, well, in the end of the book, you claim that God metaphysically can't control intelligences. Are you not agreeing with that anymore? I am
1: agreeing with that. What God can't do is make decisions for us, okay? So God can't make decisions for us, but he can certainly prevent us from exercising the power that we have. Could God render us unconscious? I would sure hope so, because I can think of all kinds of ways that a normal human being would have sufficient power to render another human being unconscious. That would be a corporeal being, of course. I don't know how it would work with a spirit being. You know, the question is, could he leave us the individuals we are and simply wipe out our ability to make decisions without limit? The answer is obviously no, because if he wiped out our ability to make decisions without limit, we wouldn't be the individuals we are. We'd cease to exist as those individuals.
0: Okay, well, let me get back to that in a minute. Um, First off, add some specific questions on free will. So when you feel the Spirit, let's say, and people say they have thoughts come into their mind and they have a feeling... I'm just wondering, it seems kind of like a form of mind control if God can influence your emotions and make you think something that you wouldn't have otherwise, not otherwise thought, but kind of made you so you're not aware that this is an outside force coming in thinking you say, you know, because we all hear stories of President Monson walking down the street and then he's like, oh, I got this feeling that... I need to go inside of this hospital, and I can recognize that that's from God, and so I do it. But if he can affect your brain at a certain level, is that not basically mind control? And do you think that God could somehow control someone's mind so that they're not a free being?
1: Well, he couldn't control their mind. Could he replace it with another mind and put it into a body and make that person a zombie working somebody else's will? I don't see how, but then there are a lot of things that God does I don't see how. So does God have that kind of power? Certainly God can bring to bear the normal kinds of power that a human being could bring to bear. I can't cause anyone to make a particular decision, though I can stop them from making decisions if I exercise coercive power. There would be constraints on God. First of all, he's loving, and uh, we can trust him to not act in ways that are unloving. It's logically impossible for God to exercise divine power and be unloving. The way that I've defined the nature of the Godhead and their relationship with each other and the divine properties that arise as a result of that relationship, independence on that relationship, divine power can't be exercised if it's exercised unlovingly. There's no priesthood power, there's no divine power, there can't be such power exercised unlovingly. What that would mean is if that it would be unloving for God to act in that way, then it would be impossible for him to do so. However, that doesn't mean that God couldn't, I mean... And this will give rise, of course, to a a problem of evil, but we'll deal with that later. But could God stop any particular person from making any particular decision, from carrying out any particular decision, I should say? And I have to believe that the answer to that is yes. I mean, take a story from the Book of Mormon where he causes a deep sleep to come over people. He has the power to cause a deep sleep to come over people. And so... If he has that kind of power, anybody who's about to commit a crime, he could cause a deep sleep to come over them, at least to temporarily prevent them from carrying out their will. So if God doesn't have that kind of power, then he clearly is much less powerful than even a normal human being, and would have so little power that we wouldn't rely on him to carry anything out, at least not within a reasonable amount of time. Maybe we could wait on him for thousands of years for his will to finally be embodied in the universe like in process thought. That's not the God revealed in Judeo-Christian scriptures, it seems to me. It's certainly not the God revealed in Mormon scripture. What I want to say is that the power that God exercises has to be greater than the mere microphysical types of persuasion that is talked about in process thought.
0: All right, one thing there. So a lot of, you know, say, well, God has to have at least the minimum power of a human being, because, of course, but the thing is, human beings are interacting with things directly and physically. Whereas God seems to, I mean, let's say perhaps he could come interact physically, but let's say for kicks and giggles that God's body is exalted and it can't necessarily interact with this world directly without burning it up or something, you know. People can't withstand God's presence. It's so intense. So God isn't here saving people from buses with his hands, literally. He's using some other type of influence or power. And I'm just not sure that the influencer power is the same thing as using a body. And it seems to be more of a spiritual thing. And that's where the limitations come in, whereas he can act through persuasion alone. So it's some kind of will. Let's skip to this because it's kind of part of this. So my main question here is about your idea of concurring power. We talked about this. You can go back and listen to the podcast about Chapter 4, but the main idea is that based on Doctrine and Covenants, Section 88, we understand that light or, you know, something like light is in and all through things, and this is God and, well, his, you know, how he influences everything, and he is a concurring, let's see, concur just means to, you know, give allowance to or give rise to, so in your view, how I understand it is there's elements, there's You know, basic elements that are what are the basic building blocks, and using his concurring power, God can bring them out of the ultimate state that they naturally go to, which is entropy and chaos, and through his concurring power and will or something, have them be activated and come together, and then they'll manifest themselves how they come together. So these individual elements have their own tendencies, though, such as if you get two hydrogens and one oxygen together, they will always create water. God isn't making up what the elements can do, he's using them to what they can do, but he does control whether or not, not control, but he is the key factor in whether or not they do exist as a organized set of elements, or just otherwise they would go into their natural state of entropy. Is that correct so far?
1: Yeah, without God's concurring power, they don't exercise their natural organizing Powers, In other words, the bonding valences of the electrons wouldn't function, I guess is the easy way to put it. So that hydrogen and oxygen wouldn't form water because the natural laws that obtain to explain why those valences form the bonds that they do would not be functional. So that's what concurring power comes down to. It means that the natural laws don't operate. And so what would happen is the universe would immediately be in chaos because nothing would be following a natural law. And so the notion is that not only can God withdraw the natural law like powers of individual elements and intelligences, he can act in different ways as well. I mean, he has at least the knowledge and the ability to act like a normal human scientist, what it seems to me. So if God wanted to work it out so that he broke the bonds of hydrogen and oxygen by doing electrolysis, it seems to me he knows at least enough to pull that off, too. I hope he knows at least enough to know that, because if he didn't, he wouldn't have even remotely the knowledge of an eighth grader in a, in a junior high school.
0: Okay, so... Yeah, sounds like I've got the basic idea so far. So anyway, uh, I guess the question I have is, well, let's just talk about different types of miracles, because that seems to be a concrete thing we can use in as an example that we can talk about. So first off, most of the miracles this concurring power seem to be able to perform are preventative, if you will. So you use an example in your book of, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tossed into a fiery furnace, but they're not burned. You say, God can withdraw his concurring power from the fire element around them in some sort of force bubble, and so it's not burning them. And that could be possibly how that type of thing would be possible. And you say God could withdraw his concurring power from my arm so I couldn't kill someone, and so my arm wouldn't work for me or something like that, because the arm is created from these elements. But one question I had is, I can see how you could maybe explain this, but If everything is naturally going to entropy, entropy seems to take a lot of time, and if he withdrew his concurring power, I don't think it would just immediately burst into nothingness, because the natural tendencies have been organized. To unorganize them would take as much time as organizing them, and we know that that takes a really long time. Yeah, that's, I
1: mean, you misunderstand entropy. Entropy is always at work in our world. Anytime you have a glass and you break it, you have greater entropy. Anytime you have a balloon and you blow it up and then you let the air out, you have entropy because what was organized in the balloon is now let go under pressure and now there's less order. So entropy is a natural feature of our universe. It's not to say that there's no entropy because God's not sustaining the natural laws. Entropy is one of the ways that our universe acts. But what it means is that the usual natural tendencies of things to act would immediately be inactive water would simply fall apart because the valences of the electrons that hold the hydrogen and oxygen together would immediately simply cease to function. And so it doesn't take a long time. It would be almost instantaneous and it would be disastrous. And so can God withdraw his concurrent power in some respects and not in others? It seems to me that that's, of course, the way that God can act because he's sustaining. God organizes the universe and in organizing the universe, supports the natural laws of the universe at least given the way that i have set up omnipotence and explanation of god's relationship to the natural universe in the theory of natural law this is the way that god acts now it's not the only way that god acts entropy is an actually natural functioning part of our universe it doesn't mean that people can't organize things within the larger laws governing our universe we all do it all the time and so god also has many other types of power at His disposal. God can act in a number of ways, so this isn't the only way that God could pull off a miracle. But there are limitations to what God can do. God cannot simply install different natural laws. That's the point I was making. It's not that this is the only way that God could pull off a miracle. That's to misunderstand what's being said.
0: Okay, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. So, yeah, so obviously you've read my notes because I sent them to you, but it seems that if God is using things in in their natural tendencies— In creation ex nihilo, which Mormonism rejects, God can basically conjure anything from nothing. There are certain miracles, such as when Jesus, for example, multiplied bread and fish. So he made more things seemingly out of thin air, or he turned water to wine, which we know is, as far as we are aware, not possible without somehow manipulating the atoms and changing them from their basic elements into something else. Or even raising the dead, for example, which is kind of essential to Christianity, or just healing the sick in general, to have Jesus lay his hands on someone and heal them, to have the natural tendencies which are already being expressed, rather than just being obliterated, having them naturally do something else, seems like you can't make that an immediate thing. And this is kind of a process thought, but I think in your view, God has to work the way that ne- elements naturally work as well. For example, you can't just conjure a brick out of thin air, but you'd have to still have someone with physical hands organizing a brick from you know, sand and mud and dirt and things like that.
1: Well, I can imagine lots of ways that God could act that don't require physical hands. Let's say that God has the ability to draw antimatter out of matter the way that scientists do all the time in a controlled setting in a lab. And let's say that God has the ability to have antimatter interact with matter to create energy at any point in the universe as he desires it. God would then be able to bring about anything that could be created by the use of energy anywhere in the universe, and he could move things around given enough energy. So what God could bring about, given the ability to do what scientists do in their labs at a much greater Rate and much greater quantities, it seems to me that what God could do may well be quite limitless compared to that. That's not saying that He's violating natural laws. It's a part of the natural laws that matter and antimatter, when they meet, we let off a great deal of energy, and that the amount of energy, given the mass that's involved, is totally predictable and measurable. I mean, I can imagine all kinds of ways for God to exercise power consistent with natural laws that can carry out just about anything you can imagine.
0: Give a concrete example from what I just said. How would that work in multiplying bread and fish? I'm not seeing how you could just conjure fish out of thin air, no matter how you manipulated, at least not naturally, without completely violating the laws of physics and the laws of nature. I'm not seeing how that could happen.
1: Well, okay, first of all, Let me explain how ridiculous it is to demand of any human being that they explain how God did a miracle in actuality. I don't have any idea how he actually did it.
0: You're the one that put forth a view saying that this is how God works. I'm just saying on your view, I know that you don't know how it actually happened, but on your view, using your hundreds of imagination ways that you just mentioned, or or you can pick one, I'm just trying to say... You know, these are the miracles in the Bible.
1: Let's say that there's latent DNA in the bread and the fish, and God actuates that DNA to to replicate itself through energy, which is how it actually does it, to begin mitosis. And so it begins multiplying itself endlessly right there in the basket. How about that?
0: I guess that doesn't seem very natural to me. I'm not trying to catch you. I'm just—I'm trying to understand— No, no, I know you're not. I'm just— You've asked me how it could possibly
1: happen, and that would be consistent with what I've explained, and I think I just did it.
0: I don't think that that could really happen, but okay. <laughs> well, I mean, okay,
1: let's assume that it really did happen in the New Testament. That fo- it follows that there was some way that it can happen. And now you're asking me not to explain how it did actually happen, but on my view, how we could possibly imagine it could happen, and I just told you how I could possibly imagine it could happen.
0: Okay, maybe it's a bad example for me. I'm just trying to wrap my head around what it is that God can and can't do. So, for
1: instance, healing the sick. Let's say somebody has their heart is, is being blocked off, and so God brings to bear just the right amount of energy, the specific place in the arteries of the heart to essentially melt all of the cholesterol that's stuck in the arteries of that person thus clearing them fully out and healing them. Let's say that a person has cancer in their body. He puts the exact amount of antimatter in each cancer cell to kill it immediately. So the person is immediately healed from cancer. Let's say that the person has a disease, and so God uses antimatter to kill all of the bad bacteria and viruses immediately. Let's say that a person is dead. Okay. Now, I don't know how you reanimate a body. But let's say that he then actuates the existing DNA in the body some way. Let's just say that he's preserved perfectly in his memory the DNA of the person and that he in some way replicates the DNA so that it then heals all the parts of the body that require healing to be reanimated. I mean, I don't know if that's possible, but I can imagine it. And so do I know that that's how God did it? Obviously not. Can I imagine it happening? The answer is yes. Would it be consistent? with the position that I've taken? Yes, because scientists can create antimatter in their labs. Obviously it doesn't stay around very long because it meets matter and knowledge, and then they watch the the trails of the subatomic particles in really neat ways to see what they do. Let's imagine that they could create any quantity that they desired in a given space, where they can project a field. It means that they could bring about anything that they want that can be accomplished through expending energy. The limits of what could be done seem to me to be, you know, compared to what we can do, almost unlimitable. One thing God couldn't overdo is ultimately overcome gravity. He couldn't overcome the fact that the universe tends toward entropy. Those kinds of things are ultimate laws, even more ultimate, because what one can accomplish through those means is, of course, limited. Now, we have to imagine that God has such great knowledge that he knows how to carry these things out. He knows how to bring to bear exactly the right kinds of energy at exactly the right places. In fact, if we take the analogy seriously, that the glory of God emanates from where he is to fill every space in the universe. And if I think if I understand DNC 88, that's the basis of natural law in the universe. And he can expand energy in any amount that he wants at any given space. And that's pretty close to the analogy that I've just given. And it may well be that that's the kind of thing that DNC 88 is pointing to. I don't know that it is, but it seems to be a reasonable way of looking at it. And given my view of natural law, it's certainly consistent with that view. So if you're asking me, how can these miracles be pulled off, I can give you a way that God can pull that off without having a great big hand coming down out of the sky and doing it.
0: Okay, no, that's fine. Just trying to understand how that works on your view, okay? If simply...
1: Making it so that natural laws were not operative and and everything in the universe immediately flew into chaos. That obviously wouldn't explain a lot of the miracles, so I agree with you there.
0: Okay, and then I was reading a blog and it kind of has more to do with God's power, and I know you're going to be tempted to get into the bigger discussion, and I'll try not to ask the question about that, but let me just ask a question that I saw on this blog. So, in a blog post you did on New Cool Thing a while ago, I think it was actually your last thread before you stopped blogging there. You're kind of talking about God and how he interacts with the universe. At the beginning, you put forth three basic views where God is, you know, the classical absolutist view where God is before the universe, so completely a being, and then he created ex nihilo, so there's that. And then there's the number two, which is kind of what we'll call the finitist Mormon view, which is, you know, more like kind of a Brigham Young view where God came up in the universe and became God. So God is after the universe and then you present a view where just like we've been talking about god is with the universe meaning his concurring power gives rise to the universe but someone on there asks i think your god does not escape being fundamentally the same as the absolutist's god before the universe because he can basically do anything not ex nihilo but you know it doesn't escape most of, i don't know let's i'll read ahead so unless of course you added a balancing effect and so If you did that you could break down the views into these three options. One, God trumps the universe which would be the God before absolutist view. Okay, number two, the universe trumps God. That's how we talked about it. And God and the universe both trump one another, the God with yours. And so he's saying unless the universe has to also concur or like the elements of the universe also concur, then it seems like you basically just have God overpowering the universe at all times. And I know that the elements kind of concurring with God at the same time is a lot like, if it's not obvious, I'm teetering kind of between your kind of view and a process view, and I'm trying to figure out where I fall in different issues. So if the universe doesn't also have to equal the amount of concurrence, then it doesn't seem God is really with the universe, and it would be more like God is always overpowering the universe. What do you think about that? (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, let's say that God is before the universe, even in process thought, there's a sense in which God is before the organized universe, because all order in the universe is dependent on God in the process view. And so you begin with God in his ideal aim as the kind of primordial reality that we begin with in process thought, and then God brings order to that universe over millions of years of time, Right. So everything in the universe is ordered because it reflects the creativity of the individual realities that are there before God. But the order that's in the universe would seem to be due to God's ordering the universe to me in process thought. One of the great challenges of a process view, it seems to me, is to elucidate a theory of natural law that is adequate. And, you know, just given process views, I don't believe that it dictates some particular view of natural law, but then it seems to underdetermine a view of natural law. So what is God's relationship to natural law? Do the realities that are there before God, would they be ordered even without God? I think that's an open question in process thought. So there are a few prior questions that I think have to be answered, and I don't believe that process thinkers have adequately addressed those issues. I certainly don't have an adequate view of any particular process thinker's view of natural law in the universe in order to be able to put together that kind of a model. So what kind of model of natural law do you have in mind when you talk about process thought and you talk about these issues of God being there overpowering the
0: universe? In your book, you spend a lot of time criticizing the absolutist view of God, and then, at least as far as his power is concerned, it seems like you're basically like, yeah, they're pretty much right, you know, the terms are different. Instead of ex hello, it's from chaos, but at the end of the day, if he can pretty much do whatever he wants, other than, you know, I, I know it's different that in ex hello he could basically make a ref- refrigerator appear, but I don't see on your view how he couldn't also make ridiculous things happen with the amount of power that he has, whereas in process thought, it seems, at least to me, just because I know this is probably just my limited world view, but knowing what I know about science and how it long it does take to make the universe. Let's say God wanted to create this world. In your view, if he can manipulate things as fast as you say, it really should have been done pretty dang fast, but if you go with this process view where actually God has to work with the material with the way it actually works, meaning its limitations and things have to happen in a certain order and it will take billions of years to create the world, like pretty sure from science it did, then that seems to make a lot more sense to me than just God be like, well, if I really feel like it, I can manipulate some dark matter and pop a world into existence. And
1: Well, first of all, let me clear a few things up. The ability of God to bring life about in its organization seems to be, on my view, where, where evolution would be the kind of view that naturally falls out. Taking an existing body and using its existing DNA to reanimate, it's a completely different process. Than creating the DNA in the first place so that it organizes itself in ever more complex forms of zoology and, you know, life process. It seems to me that that takes the types of natural biological processes that we see. So there are two different things we're talking about. If what you mean that God has the power to do ridiculous things with helping a caricature, maybe multiplying bread and fish and healing the sick and changing water and wine and raising the dead and healing the sick are ridiculous things. But God did those kinds of things, at least in the New Testament. So, you know, I don't want to say that when God does these kinds of ridiculous... We call those miracles in the Christian tradition. And the reason we call them miracles is that to us they appear to be ridiculous things, I suppose. So I think that, that what falls out from my view is evolution. I think that that's the most natural way of explaining how God would create using his persuasive power. And there's another point that I would make. It seems to me that generally persuasion is going to be preferred over any kind of coercion. Now, that's not always the case. When I have a child who is sick and refuses to take medicine, I may well put a shot in their arm and force them to receive a serum that they don't want to receive. They certainly don't want to receive a shot, and I do it anyway, and I may hold them so that a shot can be administered. When they don't want to go to bed, and I know it's for their best interest that they get some sleep, I did it many times. I coerced my children. I put them in my arms, I carried them upstairs, and I put them in bed. And I don't consider myself to be a bad father for having done so, even though I used coercion. And certainly the difference between my knowledge of the well-being of my children is vastly insufficient compared to God's knowledge of what's in our best interest. So when we begin to compare these kind of things, if one wants to say that coercive power is always morally preferable i think i can give them a number of instances where they would agree that we'd be better if god could bring to bear some type of coercive power and so i want to say that god can bring to bear that kind of coercive power but only when it is consistent with love and only when it is consistent with our best interests, because that's the kind of being god is And i've also said that in the absence of that kind of love divine power couldn't be exercised at all so it seems to me that generally, whenever persuasion can be used, persuasion will be used. When coercion is required, however, God can bring about coercive. Indeed, human beings have the ability to bring about coercive power on a regular basis. And if God can't bring about coercive power you know, in those kinds of instances... Now, obviously, it makes the problem of evil much more difficult to resolve. We're not talking about The problem of evil, we're talking about God's relationship to the universe and and how do we describe it. So when we get to uh, the problem of evil, I want to say that a process view of God's power is a live option within Mormonism. I don't think it ought to be rejected outright, but it doesn't seem to me to be consistent with the kind of things that God has said to do in Scripture. I have yet to hear a process thinker explain the resurrection in any way that approaches being um, satisfactory to me.
0: No, I, I agree. I'm just trying to make sense of the universe as I observe it, as opposed to... And this is too much of a burden for you. This isn't just you. I know that this is just religion in general for me. This is everyone's dilemma to see the world that it is and have a limited understanding of science. And I'm not seeing necessarily tons of miracles happening ever. And so...
1: Really, I see miracles happening everywhere, every day.
0: Well, not the kind that you... I don't know, it doesn't matter there.
1: But No, you're right. I mean, what I mean by miracles are things that I see God's hand in. For me...
0: Well, that's different.
1: God's hand is in virtually everything. I think the only difference between a believer and a non-believer is that God is involved in everything for the believer, and God's involved in nothing for the unbeliever. And I really don't think there's anywhere in between. Even a process thinker is going to see God's influence involved in virtually everything that occurs. And I'll confess, I'm kind of a recovering process theologian, and I haven't recovered that much. I still think very often in process terms, and and process thought makes a great deal of sense to me most of the time. There are just some things that I look at and say, you know, process thought doesn't seem to be adequate to explain that to me. And what you're saying is, well, your view of, of natural law doesn't seem to be adequate to explaining. What I've endeavored to explain, and probably have done so inadequately, is that, well, what you've taken to be the mechanism of miracles, and that is God's withdrawing his concurring power, isn't the explanation for all miracles. But what it does explain is that God is limited to natural law. God never does anything that is simply inconsistent with natural law unless he simply obliterates natural law. He doesn't have the option of creating a world with different natural laws. And when we come to natural evil, that, in my view, gives a great explanatory benefit that is not shared by the tradition and is not shared by process thought. But that's something that I'll get to in my fourth one. It hasn't even been published yet, so we're probably a bit ahead of the curve here.
0: That's fine. And we can move on from here. Just one last thing on here. The reason I do this is just my kind of existential crisis. I don't know if that's the right term, but is I don't know how, and I feel like until I can resolve this, I, I don't know how to pray because I don't know what I can ask for. Can I pray and say, God, please cure cancer from someone and is that a thing that God can do? You say yes, and other views, I, and then I have to deal with like, well, that, whether or not that happens, I don't know. So I don't know if I should say, help me do good on this test, because God can't help me do good on a test. I have to do good on a test. You know, just things like that. And so understanding what God's power is, is essential.
1: They're perfectly legitimate questions. They're questions that naturally arise. And it may be that there are limits to what God can do with cancer, but given my own personal experience, I mean, I actually gave a blessing to a young girl who was in the last stages of leukemia who went into complete remission immediately after the blessing and left the hospital a few weeks later in complete remission. And so I can't explain exactly how things occurred, but my own experience suggests that does God have that kind of power? Uh, Yeah, i I believe he does have that kind of power because I've seen him exercise that kind of power. But that's not really a theology. That's just a lived experience. And what else would we pray for? I mean, let me put it this way. If you're a process thinker and you believe that God has very limited power, you're still going to pray for him to overcome the cancer. Because it may be that all of the elements conspire to accept God's initial aim that persuades them to not replicate the cancer cells and to replicate all of the healthy cells. That's a possibility within process thought. It's not very probable, but it's a possible thing that could occur. And it seems to me that the more people you have praying for that result, the greater the influence that's acting. And so I can make a great deal of sense of mass prayer and prayer for just about anything in process thought. And in process thought, I would say, well, you know, miracles don't happen very often. They're not very probable, but maybe they happen often enough to make it worth praying for. What I wouldn't do in process thought is believe that God could guarantee me that the promises that he's made that I'm going to be saved from all powers that may seek my destruction, he actually has the ability to pull off. He may or may not, and it's not up to him whether he has that ability. I think your questions here are all good ones, so keep going.
0: So next, I want to kind of move into a lot of the chapters in the book focused on God's foreknowledge, and we arrived at basically that God doesn't have infallible foreknowledge. He has what you have termed contingent omniscience, meaning he knows all that can be known. We'll say the future likely doesn't exist yet to be known, so it can't be known 100%. If we take your metaphysics here, God knows every possible thing that the elements in their base form can do. Therefore, he knows all possibilities, meaning every single possible way that any of the elements could be used physically whatsoever He knows those things. And the person that was in the Author Meets Critic brings up the criticism saying, okay, the possibility is fine, but you also say, well, he has a problem with the probability part of that. So, knowing all possible things does not necessarily give you any information about the probability of those items occurring. And he gives this example. How can God know? probability of outcomes for agent A unless he knows the future circumstances that make a probabilistic prediction possible. You'd have to have definite knowledge of future events surrounding the actions of agent A. For example, to make a prediction, you would have to have a set of facts about agents B and C as they relate to the actions of agent A. God does not know the actions of agents B and C based on your view of free will, so therefore he cannot make any meaningful predictions about the probability of any of the possibilities for Agent A.
1: And what that misunderstands is that God doesn't have to know the probability. God knows all of the possibilities for what Agents B and C do. And the analogy that I've used, that of a chess player analogy, isn't that God knows the probability and therefore acts based upon that probability. God has made an initial judgment going through all the possibilities. He's assessed what every single possibility given A, B, and C, and so forth. He knows what he must do, given whatever choice it is made, in order to realize his plan. So he knows he can realize his plan, and he intends to bring about his plan, so he may intervene from time to time to bring about his plan. It doesn't require him to know any probability at any given time. What God knows in terms of probability are not the future decisions of Agents B and C in a given situation. What he knows is, given the way the causal circumstances are now, what the probability is, that certain things will occur. And if things are a causal outcome, so for instance, if Agent A has a certain kinds of cancer growing in his or her body right now, God knows the probability that Agent B is going to be dead within two years. What God doesn't know is, what will the circumstances be in two years given the choices that are made by everybody else, so that he can begin to make probabilistic judgments based upon what people are going to choose. But that's to misunderstand what I've asserted. I've asserted only that God knows all the possibilities, and given those possibilities, that he can ensure that his plans will be realized and what he needs to do to bring about his plans. That's the first scenario. The second is, God knows the probabilities, given all causally certain results right now, of what will be occurring given existing conditions. It isn't that God knows all future choices and the probability right now of all future choices. I haven't made that assertion at all, and so the criticism that was made, and it was made, again, is based on a misunderstanding, asserting something that isn't asserted in this view and doesn't need to be asserted.
0: And he gives an example which I think I can come up with a solution to, but I just thought I'd give it. So he said, I see it hard to understand how God could determine the probability of me seeing my wife and children later this evening. So, because he's at a conference, he says, how can God know the outcome of a causal chain of free human choices that could result in me not seeing my wife and kids, like a very slight turn that causes me to run over a nail that pops my tire and then causes me to crash? Let me just take a stab at this. So, let's say God knows that's possible, that that could happen, but the probability of that is that, well, you're on driving on the path that this nail is on and it's probably not going to happen but were it to happen I'd say that's when potentially God could give this person a spiritual prompting maybe right before it happens just because he could see at that point that that would happen and hopefully that's enough time for this person to react to that or not
1: yeah I mean that's one of the, I mean what you said I think is the way to go first of all God knows the present plans of the individuals involved He knows the likelihood that they're going to be all home at 9 o'clock because they all intend to be home at 9 o'clock, and he knows the probability of a car running over a nail on its way home on the freeway is very remote. Maybe it's 0.004%. He'd know that a lot better than I would. So God knows the existing probability at that moment. The notion that he could know that probability is absurd. He does know that probability given the events as they actually occur. But this is the key. Probabilities are based upon things that exist in any given moment where God is exercising his knowledge. So, probability is always time relative. If God is making a probability judgment at T1, he has to base it on the circumstances that exist at T1, not as they exist at T2, because probabilities change. So, if the probabilities change, let's say they're on the way home and they actually do run into an L, he knows the probability. And maybe it gets a lot greater because maybe there are no L's on the freeway, and he also knows that. <laughs> okay. He knows that there are nails on the freeway and the likelihood that that person is going to take that route. And if they do take that route, the likelihood that their tire is going to run over the nail. And if the likelihood of that tire hitting the nail, that causing a crash, he knows all of that. But thats it's how much higher probability that they're going to run over a nail if there are actually nails on the freeway. There's a very low probability if there aren't any. So the probabilities change, but they're always assessed at the given moment when the assessment of the probability is made. And so the challenge that's been made, again, is a misunderstanding, and it's an attempt, I think, to suggest that the view is less than adequate, when in fact, the view not only doesn't make that suggestion, it doesn't even need to make that suggestion. Let me give another example. It may be that God has good reason to wait to see what kind of decisions we actually make to determine how he will respond, unless there's a possibility that he needs to act before that in order to ensure the realization of his purposes, okay? So if something could happen that would render it impossible for him to realize his purposes. He needs to prevent that thing from happening. I don't know that that's the case, but God has a. a let me give an example. I mean, and I don't believe in the historicity of a worldwide flood, but I'm just using it as a, as an example. Scripture teaches that God had a plan, and then it went to hell in a handbasket. The entire world became evil, except for and and even Noah wasn't an icon of virtue, but he had this family that got saved. God started all over again. So in really amazing circumstances. God may just say, well, I'm going to let the the world drive itself over the edge, and then I'm going to save some people to start it over again. So God could have really drastic plans, according to the Judeo-Christian tradition. But it seems to be a plan B, not his primary plan. It's clear in Genesis that God didn't plan for the world to go wrong, but it did anyway. And so, you know, he came up with what I call the Noah option still not a great option, but it was at least an option. It may be that he has good reason to wait on us to make a decision before actually deciding what he's going to do. Let me give an example. It may be that before he interferes in my life in a specific way, he's going to wait to see if I pray and give him permission to do so. He may wait to see if I've learned a lesson before moving me on to the next lesson, okay? So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to teach me how to love my enemies until I've learned to love my family and friends. And then maybe he moves me on to enemies, and maybe he moves me on to enemies right away because I can't learn one without the other. God knows that better than I do. But in any event, God waits on me to make decisions, and and maybe he has another reason for that. He knows all the indexical possibilities, and if there's something that's going to destroy his plan, he's going to make sure that that doesn't happen. But maybe God has the option in almost all circumstances of simply waiting to see what we actually do before acting. Because he wants to interact with us in a personal way and have us give him permission or have us ask or see what kind of lessons we learn first because maybe it will overwhelm us if we haven't learned the prior lessons. I can imagine all kinds of scenarios. But the bottom line is, unless we have the notion that God makes his decisions based upon present probabilities, not probabilities that occur in the future, we're going to go wrong real fast.
0: Okay. Okay. Based on individual free will and the unpredictability of free will, it seems due to the law of probabilities and statistics that whatever God's plan is, he can't necessarily have an individual plan for people just because there's so many unknown factors that he can't necessarily plan that unless there was some sort of built-in generic plan and then people could do, you know, they'll learn it whenever they happen to encounter it just because, I don't, I'm trying to say basically, you can have a general plan for humanity, but not necessarily for individuals based on probabilistic concerns. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I guess before I ask this, I wonder if you can give an example, at least in your view, of what kind of things are God's plan? Are you talking about God's overall plan of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man through giving people some kind of experience? Or are you talking about... He actually cares meticulously about the development of the world, and it's necessary that you know certain governments fall and certain technologies are developed at, at certain times, and like a meticulous plan, or is it more generic like do whatever you want, humans as long as you're learning love that's my plan well,
1: it's all of the above, <laughs> okay what you presented seems to be. So God has a general plan for everyone. We all have different purposes in life, and I think that God largely leaves what our purpose of life is going to be up to us to choose. In other words, God doesn't give us life and then plan our life for us. He gives us life and then revels in the kinds of choices that we make to watch who we become and who we choose to be, and he wants to lure us, draw us, and inspire us to choose to love one another so that we can participate in the fullness that he wants to share with us. Obviously that doesn't always occur, but he gives us opportunities along the way, I think to learn. And maybe they're just general opportunities. Like it seems to me that at a certain point, he certainly knows that we're going to be born into a certain family. He knows that that family has a certain history. It seems to me that if a child is born into a, a family with a long history of physical sexual abuse, psychological abuse, he knows the likelihood at that given moment uh, that it's going to continue and that that child will be subjected to those kinds of abuses and the kinds of
0: opportunities
1: you will have to learn from those kinds of abuses and and to overcome them or not. Obviously, whether they overcome those kinds of things is up to them in certain respects. Maybe they will be born in the circumstances where anybody would be overwhelmed. I don't know. But it seems to me God would have to know those kinds of things at the, the time that we're born. So given the time that we're born, there's a lot that he knows about the kind of experience that a person is likely to undergo. Those probabilities change. I mean, a father who's an alcoholic might dry out. And so the experience of that child will be very different than of growing up in the house of an alcoholic, that kind of a thing. So present probabilities are going to be changing. And God's plan for us, there's one thing that's in common for all of us. Well, we all have individual things that we come to experience in life, and we have different purposes that we choose to fulfill in life. Learning to love, learning to be in relationship with others is inevitable. Human beings are social beings. We come into this world through the pain and life of another, and there's no way to escape that. We grow up in families and circumstances, and human beings are such that we can't live very long unless we're in relationship with others. And so it's inevitable that we're going to be rubbing against each other and learning from each other if we choose to. And so God has general plans. In my view, he has these kinds of general plans for us and then watches with marveled awe, if you will, <laughs> at the kinds of things that we actually choose. I think he's probably amused with some of us. I think he's disappointed with some of us. I think he's just overwhelmed with joy at some of the choices we make. The bottom line is is that the whole point of this life is to give us the opportunity to learn from our experiences. There's this statement in DNC 121 that I just love. All these things shall be for thy experience and shall be for thy good. I take this to mean something like, every experience you have can be to your benefit if you choose to learn from it. I see it as a no-lose proposition. We come here to learn from experiences, and it's inevitable that we're going to have experiences And if we live long enough, we're going to have the cognitive capacity to learn. If we don't, then our purposes may be be different. That would require a much greater description of what God is up to in his plan. And in my theodicy, I take all that into consideration, or my theodicies, I should say. But all of those are things that God is working with us to bring about. He doesn't have to have foreknowledge to accomplish his purposes in terms of absolute foreknowledge of all the free choices that people will make in order to do that, it seems to me.
0: Okay. All right, And then just a couple last things here. In the last chapter on Christology, I just want you to clarify this because I know what your actual view is. But in there you, you state that though humans can share in the divine unity, they'll always be subordinate to God eternally. And I know that has been a criticism that I brought up a while ago in one of the earlier chapters of some people saying, like, well, that's definitely not a Mormon view, because we believe we are the same kind as God, and we're not subordinate, we are co-equal with God, and we're the same, you know, we believe we can be co-equal, not just subordinate forever, and being his subordinate little people. So, can you clarify what you mean by subordinate, again, even though I know you've done it before?
1: Yeah, I can. And let me give a concrete example. Take the resurrected Christ in Third Nephi. He is everything that his Father is. He's fully divine. He's perfect in the same sense that his Father is. In fact, he invites us to be perfect even as he or as the Father is. But he still gives all glory and honor to the Father. And the reason that he does that is that it was the Father's loving patience and endeavoring and, you know, earnestness that, brought him to where he is, and because of our, the gratitude and love that we have for the Father giving us the opportunity to be everything that he is, we're always subordinate in the sense that we recognize that he was the one who gave us the opportunity and that we owe him gratitude. It's the same, I could say, in many respects with our own parents. I've grown to be everything that my own parents are in the sense that I'm a fully mature human being. I'm nearly 60 years of age, um, and I've learned enough to know that the things that my parents told me I didn't understand when they said it, but because I've now had the same experiences I can see from their perspective in a way I couldn't before. That's probably true of everyone, by the way, as we go through life. I will always be grateful to them. I, I'm not something that they aren't. I'm. I'm not a more complete human being. I'm not more loving. I'm not more divine, but I'm at least a fully mature human being in the sense that my body has fully matured and i will always be grateful to them i'll always owe them my view is that my parents will never be in debt to me for the simple reason that they changed my diapers and i'll always owe them <laughs> okay and so no matter what i'm grateful to them i'll take in taking care of them and and my parents are now in failing health and so I consider it an opportunity and a privilege to be able to serve them. But no matter how much I serve them, no matter how much I do, they will never be in my debt. I will always be in their debt for what they did for me. That's what I have in mind.
0: Okay, well, makes a lot of sense. So rather than subordinate as in like master-servant type relationship, it seems you mean more like we owe him the glory. He deserves the praise and the glory for giving us this opportunity to even be here and to, be, right. we, to become we them higher.
1: Them. Right. We, we owe them the respect, the honor, and frankly, the simple sense of having been a recipient of gifts that we didn't deserve from them. I mean, my, my mother went through great pain to bring me into the world, and I don't know anything I can do to repay that. I'll always be grateful for him. My father got up every day of his life. It wasn't Sunday or Saturday that he took off and went to work because he loved me. I don't know how i can repay that my father was there when i needed him to be there i don't know how to repay those things and and it's even more with god the world that i exist in the body that i have the family that i'm in everything that i have is ultimately the result of god's giving me unearned grace and blessings and it will never be the case that he's in my debt it will always be the other way around and so when i say subordinate It will always be the case that we give honor and glory to God. It will never be the other way around.
0: Yeah, that turns that into, rather than a criticism, something that we, at least as far as I can tell, would all agree on. All right, cool. And then one last thing I don't want to take. I mean, I'm taking a long time. Why not? Uh, Just one other thing. One person in the author meets critic was, so he had kind of a more traditional view of God. And he said, you know, God can, you know, if he's a timeless God, I, I could see, I don't see why a timeless God couldn't enter time. And you criticized him for, what that's an incoherent notion for a timeless God to enter into time, which I'll agree with. But that just got my brain thinking about what we talked about with God in time. And I am wondering, in your view, we'll say first off, we talked about God being in his own inertial frame of reference. And is not like timeless, but maybe in his own time, if you will. Like it's still part of time of the universe, but it's not the same as our time. And the way he experiences is not the same way we do. Could he leave his frame of reference?
1: Well, first of all, he's not in a frame of reference. It, we, we can say it's a frame of reference. It's an overarching frame of reference that includes all inertial frames of reference. So God has the knowledge of every inertial frame of reference. So to say that he's stuck within a frame of reference is kind of to misunderstand, the, you know, I think, what we're saying.
0: I understand that, that his influence and the way he is everywhere but could his physical body leave that frame of reference and could he still be gone from anywhere in the universe or is it just in that one place?
1: This one I'm not sure I've, I've worked out fully or, or worked out well. It seems to me that if God has a body, that what we mean by a body is a materially extended reality that is in space and time, okay? I don't know how else to make sense of that God has a body. I do want to say, however, that God's body has a different dimensionality. Okay? <laughs> the kinds of things that are said about resurrected bodies in the scriptures lead me to suggest that they're not subject to the same kind of laws that our bodies are, the same kinds of limitations. And so when we talk about God having a material body, we're going to want to make some allowances. And so it makes it very difficult for me to address this because I'm not sure we have enough information about what a resurrected body is to be able to talk about this. Certainly not with full knowledge, but let's talk about the very very bare minimum, the essentials of having a body, that it's extended in space and time, which would say that it's in a particular place in a particular inertial frame of reference. And I don't know how to state this in a way that doesn't escape that kind of view. I will say that God's influence proceeds from his corporeal presence to fill the immensity of space the way DNC 88 asserts that it does, which would suggest that God is more than his body. And so it may be that it's not a limitation for God that his body is in a particular frame of reference because his knowledge, awareness, and cognizance are not so limited. And so maybe it's not, not a real limitation. But then how could it be that God's body is in a particular place and he could visit a person in actuality in his physical body? I mean, it means that—and let me just get very crass with this. Jesus has a resurrected body, and if a resurrected body is extended in space and time, then Christ is in a particular place at a particular time, and it would make sense that it's subject to gravity on a particular planet. Maybe it's not subject to gravity, but it still has to be some time and some place, somewhere in in the universe, it seems to me. Most of Christianity believes that Christ has a resurrected body, and so they have the same problem that we do. It's asserting that God the Father has a body. So let's not pretend that this is just a Mormon problem. It's a Christian problem. What does it mean to assert that God has a body is a problem that it seems to me that every Christian who isn't at least a closet docetic doesn't have to tell with. There are a lot of people who want to say, well, Christ had a spiritual body because Paul says he had a, a sarkikos. His body was sarkikos, but it was also pneumaticos. It was a spiritual body. And so we're talking about a nomadic body, that is a spiritual body, it means something different than a resurrected body. But I don't think that Paul is really making that kind of an assertion at all. I think that when Paul's talking about the resurrected body, he's talking about a person who appeared to him at a particular place in time on the road to Damascus, who had a physical form. So, you know, but there are a lot of different views that one can take about what it means to have a resurrected body. No matter how you parse this, it has to be that God is at a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular frame of reference with respect to his physical body. But it may be that his body has a very different dimensionality than our body, so that maybe a resurrected body has access to dimensions that our body doesn't because of the kind of matter that it is. And maybe I want to assert the kind of matter that's involved is something that we're not fully familiar with. But that would just mean that what I mean by body really doesn't apply fully to God's body, so I really have no idea what I'm talking about. Those are all possibilities, it seems to me. But no matter how I frame it, God's awareness, his cognitive awareness, certainly transcends anybody that is in a particular inertial frame of reference.
0: Okay. So yeah, that's pretty much all that came up for me from reviewing. Um, And then I'd like to just step back for a second, and you know, you've heard me bring up some issues. And these aren't issues just for this book. These are issues I have in general, and I'm sure other people have their own. But I just want to come back around and say that having read through this book now, and I look forward to the other ones as well, that I am really in awe at the effort that's been putting to this. I mean, it's a monumental undertaking, and, and you took it on with courage and meticulousness and didn't back down from the challenge. And that is definitely to be commended, and I just want to read, for those that maybe haven't read these books, just a couple of the initial reviews that came out. These books are the most important works on Mormon theology ever written. There is nothing currently available that is even close to the rigor and sophistication of these volumes. Another one. One of the most important books this is referring to this book, written on Mormon philosophy since B. H. Roberts The Truth, the Way and the Life. No one in Mormon Studies has done such extensive and rigorous research in philosophy ever before. And just reviews like this. And so, again, your book isn't God telling us the answers, but it is a dedicated and devout Christian Mormon using your gifts and faculties to bring to light what we can figure out. And, again, I see it is to be commended. And I'm I'm proud of you as my father, not just because of these things, you know, all of your other things. I'm just saying this is a source of pride for me you know, the good pride. And these books are, I don't know, I'm just trying to get at because I've been bringing up criticisms that, that though I have a few unclarities and criticisms, they, they pale in comparison to what I have gained from reading through the books. And so just wanted to say that.
1: I appreciate that. I hope you didn't pay too big a price because I spent a lot of time when you were a kid writing and researching and you probably would have preferred to have been out hiking around. But I will say this, I spent most of my time writing between 10 and 2 in the morning precisely so I could spend time with you kids. And so, you know, I trust you didn't pay too high a price. But, you know, everybody's got to have something that they're just passionate about. And it's obvious that this is one of the things that I was passionate about. What I mostly appreciate is that you've grown to be the kind of person who cares about these kind of things and that you've grown to be a a very intelligent, caring person that uh, has the ability to deal with these issues and share them with me because I don't feel quite as lonely now.
0: Well, good. And likewise, I really appreciate the fact that I have someone to talk to and I know most people don't. That's again, one of the reasons I started this podcast in the first place is I have this wonderful, great resource that I bet Or, you know, I tell people, like, man, what would that be like? That Blake Osler is your dad. Holy cow. You're lucky. Like, you know what? I am. And so I'm going to take the time to, to do this. Anyway, we've taken enough of the people's time. And so let's end this for now, if you're okay with that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.